This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour this Friday afternoon. I'm Cassie Huff and I hope you're keeping cool out there. The change is coming through tonight, so hopefully you'll get a reprieve. I'll have weather in about 20 minutes. I'll also introduce you to the new CEO of the newly created Cattle Council, or Cattle Australia, I should say. I'm passionate about agriculture, I'm passionate about the cattle industry, um, and quite frankly, I couldn't think of a better place to land. More on that soon, but the We'll get to this first story. The first fully electric ute in Australia is doing a tour to show farmers what it can do. But with only a 330-kilometre range and a one-tonne towing capacity, this LDV ute, is it actually fit for purpose or just a gateway to future technology? To learn more about it, Warwick Long went for a drive. It's big, metallic blue, and the best way to describe it is it kind of looks like a Hilux. This is a very different kind of ute, though. The first EV ute in Australia that people can buy. It has around a six-figure price tag, and it's about to go on a regional tour to show people what utes like this can do. With it, with the keys in his hand, is Ben Lever. He's a regional clean transport organiser at Solar Citizens, which describes itself as a community organisation campaigning for more clean energy and clean transport. So can this ute, or other EV utes, stand the test of Australian agriculture? Let's go and find out. So this is the first commercially available uh, electric ute in Australia. Um, You know, it wasn't all that long ago that people were saying that electric utes didn't exist anywhere in the world. Well, here it is right now. I'm touching it as we speak. Looks pretty real to me. That's it. It's no unicorn. It's right here. Ben, tell me a little bit about this car. It's got a huge battery on it, um, about 88 kilowatts, and you know, it's it's basically can do the things that a Ute can do, but cleaner. Should I be scared? Definitely not. Should we go for a drive? Let's do it. All right, we're in the car at the moment. Ben's got it. Ben, before we start the car, it's a bit like a normal Ute on the inside, probably a little bit more modern looking with a bit of a, a computer type display but that's about it yeah that's it it's very much going to be like any other you that you're used to except it's going to be much cleaner for the environment and much better for your hip pocket uh, not having to fill up with your petrol all the time and i notice you've you've got a key no that's it um it's you know, basic turnkey situation um no no nothing fancy i'm just getting the job done all right i better put my seatbelt on and then we should go It's pretty smooth as we just drive off. You just turn off and go. The first thing I notice, Ben, is it's pretty quiet. Yeah, it's very quiet. It actually emits a little bit of a musical note um, just to, so that you can hear it coming for safety reasons. Otherwise, it would be totally silent. And in terms of the power in it as well, how fast is it? Oh, there we go. I can feel that. Yeah, got a little bit of um, acceleration to it. Um, go quite, quite a bit of torque. Um, the beautiful thing about an electric motor is that all of the torque is available to you as soon as you put your foot down. It's not just a particular part of the rev range, like with a combustion engine. So it really does pick up and go whenever you want it to. So it almost goes faster immediately than a normal car. That's right. It just accelerates straight off the line with no hassles whatsoever. I could feel that. My, you basically put my bum back in the seat when you put the foot down then. That's it. If you put the foot down, it will go like the clappers. 
How much battery life does this car have? So this has 88 kilowatt hours, um, which for this car is, is about uh, 330 kilometers is the estimated range. Emily Crawford's with us in the back of the car with us. So I'm going to turn around and try and stretch my arm out towards you, Emma. Emily, you're off a, a dairy farm close to here. Is it exciting to be in a car like this or think about technology like this for your farm? Uh, yes, Warwick, it is. I think dairy farmers and farmers would be really interested to know that there might be a possibility of getting electric vehicles that will actually do what they need them to do and have large towing capacities and then, you know, we could actually have the options of reducing carbon emissions and saving money on diesel. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think it's important for farmers to be looking at things like electric vehicles and, and moving away from fossil fuels? Uh, well, I think all farmers feel pretty strongly that we want to try to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, you know, we've all experienced floods and hailstorms and lots of adverse weather here in the last few months. And so I think everyone wants to try and improve that situation. and. The transport industry is one of the major emitters in Australia and I think Australian farmers would like to be a part of that journey. Ben Levers with us as we're cruising through uh, downtown Shepparton now, we're almost making our way in, into town. Ben, a couple of things I wanted to touch off. One, one towing. Can you tow with a ute like this? Absolutely you can. Um, there's a tow ball that's uh, one of the options for this vehicle um, from the factory and it's got a, a thousand kilo uh, capacity to tow. Does that affect your battery life greatly? Yeah, so obviously the more the more weight you're carrying, uh, the more work the engine has to do, so it does reduce the, the range a bit, um, but it's, it is definitely capable of it. Do you know by how much? Like, does it halve your, your battery life or a third or, or three quarters? What? Yeah, not, not too sure exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably something to, to work out as well. Emily was talking then about the options. This is the first commercially available uh, ute electric ute in Australia. There are others overseas. What's holding back other car manufacturers from introducing utes like this to Australia? So in a lot of our peer nations, um, the other sort of advanced economies, they have fuel efficiency standards that require the car companies to bring in a range of vehicles, some of which are, are much more cleaner and efficient, and that includes a, a good mix of electric vehicles as well. Because Australia doesn't really have these standards, we're at the bottom of the queue, and um, we just... Jump in that lane while you're talking about this, Sorry. if you can. The car manufacturers are prioritising those other nations for their electric vehicles. Because they've only got a limited supply, they put them where they have to put them because of the, the rules. So because we are at the back of the queue, we don't get the variety of models and we also get a very limited run, which usually sells out in you know a matter of minutes in some cases. What are the, the major criticisms for a car like this at the moment? Um, so a lot of people are really concerned about the range, um, and that's one of the reasons that we are so keen to see these other models that do have a, a larger battery and longer range uh, coming into the country, as well as seeing the, the charging network continue to roll out. Um, the other big one is the upfront cost, um, and that's one of the reasons that we're keen to see you know more affordable models that are available in Europe um, be brought into the country and to see a little bit more competition to help drive down those prices. What does a car like this cost? 
So this one is nearly $100,000, but if we look in New Zealand, it's about $20,000 cheaper because they have those uh, standards that are driving the prices down. So it's a really clear example of, of how the right policies can make a big difference to uh, individual uh, buyers. No one will probably hear it because the car's so quiet, but we'll turn it off and jump out after a drive like that. Thanks, thanks for taking us for a cruise. No worries. Thanks for coming along. So Emily, you're a dairy farmer in Chichura. We've been for the drive now. What do you make of it? Oh, I think it's really exciting. It's a great vehicle and just seems like a normal ute to me. Uh, and I think it's just really exciting if we're starting to see them coming into the country. Um, as a farmer, I'd like to get an electric vehicle and I'd like them, you know, machinery and vehicles to be electric so we can start reducing our carbon emissions on farm and saving on our diesel bills. How long do you think it'll take before you see a ute like this one on your farm? I don't know. This might be a ute that we'd buy, but um, you know we need something that's probably equivalent to a Land Cruiser or an F-150, something that we're going to tow, something that's versatile. Uh, and I think you know all farmers need to make their own choices and we want to be able to choose. We don't just want to have the one ute. Emily Crawford, Tatura Farmer and Member of Farmers for Climate Action, speaking with Warwick Long. And you also heard from Ben Lever, who is a regional clean transport organiser at Solar Citizens as well there. Moving to cattle now, and Luke Bowen has been appointed as the inaugural Chief Executive of Cattle Australia, which is the new pick body for the nation's grass-fed cattle industry. Luke is currently Head of the Agriculture, Fisheries and Biosecurity for the Northern Territory's Government. But is perhaps best known for his time as the CEO of the NT Cattlemen's Association. And he sat down with Matt Brand to talk about his new role and explain what Cattle Australia is hoping to achieve. Cattle Australia, so it's the peak body uh, that was formed in November last year through um, a democratically elected board uh, that's now in place to represent the cattle industry at the national level. So it's simple as that. So it's the member-driven, member industry-driven body. Uh, it's the restructure of Cattle Council of Australia, who a lot of listeners probably would be familiar with, yeah. which is the peak body for the cattle industry. Um, it's been through a restructure process, and now we have Cattle Australia. Why does the grass-fed cattle industry need this? So, Matt, if you look at the numbers, uh, 30% of Australia's agricultural production is from the beef industry. Uh, the beef industry, cattle industry, manages about 45% of Australia's land mass. Um, this is our biggest export industry um, and it's a major player, a major uh, foundation of our agricultural sector. Um, it in, underpins a lot of our economy but also underpins employment, uh, regional and remote locations. It is well, it's part of the fabric of this nation. Cattle Council of Australia, the predecessor, basically was run on a shoestring budget, barely had any staff and that caused all kinds of problems. How is Cattle Australia different? Well, I think what we have to have in a national organisation like that is an organisation that's effective uh, and can have influence, um, but fundamentally needs to be tuned into its members and the industry. Um, so It would need more funding too, yes? Do you have more dollars at your disposal? Well, of, of course. And I'm not in the job yet, Matt, so I'm going to leave that for later on <laughs> okay. to talk about that. But clearly, um, it's fundamentally there to advocate for the industry. Um, and, and I think, like any organisation that does that well, uh, I think things will flow from there. Are there a few big topics in particular that you know you'll need to get in and tackle first? Yeah, and look, the, the board is very um, uh, a very high-capacity board that's been appointed from around Australia, um, and that's, that's a, an incredibly 
powerful start for this organisation. Uh, it also has a policy council, which um, will evolve into a directly elected policy council, which is made up of representatives from around the country, but also uh, state farm organisations will be involved in that policy council. That is the engine room in relation to what is important for the industry um, to put forward and what to prioritise, what to advocate for. Um, so that'll be the engine room um, and driven by a very, very focused, very powerful, uh, very effective board. Yeah. A board that is impressive, no doubt, but a board that is mostly male, just the one female... Do you feel that's an issue going forward for a for an organisation that's meant to be modern and representing the entire cattle industry? The the board's going to be refreshed every every year, so there's a process in the constitution of doing that. So right. certainly, um, we know there are all women playing in in industry. I um, mean, they're right in the middle of it all, and uh, we know that. And certainly, uh, the territories have demonstrated the role of women in the agricultural sector. Uh, it's undeniable. So, I mean, this is a a process of continual renewal in relation to the board. So there's the constitution's been set up that way. Um, so I expect we'll be seeing a lot of women lining up for the board. I asked you about some topics that you'll need to tackle first. You told me about how good the board is, but yeah, what about topics, issues you'll need to tackle? Well, I think I'll take direction uh, from the board and the policy council, clearly. Okay. I'm not in the job yet. I've got plenty to do in this current job. We've got a lot of challenges with biosecurity and um, a number of other things. So, but I'll be taking direction and, and my, my mission will be set by uh, the priorities that the board and the policy council uh, establish. It's been, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a rocky road to get to this point for Cattle Australia. Is this organisation still facing legal challenges? Um, I can't comment on that, but I, I, uh, so I'll, I'll abstain from making any comment on that. Uh, but I think we've got a positive way forward from what I understand. Okay. What are you most excited about in this gig? Oh, look, this is in my DNA, Matt. Um, I love this stuff. Uh, and it's, it's, um, uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just, it just really... You're back. Feels, Some, yeah, someone right. in the industry thought I should either play, you know, regal music or welcome back Cotter to introduce <laughs> you today. You're back in no, it. It does feel nice. It really does feel nice, Matt. Not, look, at the end of the day, I love this industry. And, and even working in government, I've been a very strong advocate for industry. And that's why the job I currently do is all about industry. And, um, and we wouldn't be there if we didn't have an industry. So this is just an extension of that. Um, I'm passionate about agriculture. I'm passionate about the cattle industry. Um, and quite frankly, I couldn't think of a better place to land. Luke Bowen, the first CEO of Cattle Australia, who begins in the role on April 17. It's 19 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Before we get to weather, not-for-profit organisation AgSafe has been appointed to run a national recycling program for seed and feed bags that are currently going into landfill. An initiative of CropLife Australia and the Australian Seeds Federation, it won't be funded by a farmer levy, but it will result in an increase in product prices. AgSafe General Manager Dominique Doyle says Bagmuster will be modelled off the long-running drum muster scheme. Uh, it'll run similarly to Drum Muster, which is our chemical recycling program. Drum Muster has most of its collections through waste transfer stations, working with local government. We expect that Bag Muster will have closer linkages to the retailers. We're not talking uh, hazardous waste here. We're talking uh, product bags. Um, and so um, having those strong linkages with the re uh, re resellers will certainly assist in the collection process. And what sorts of plastic products are we talking about? So we're looking at bags that are product bags that are entering the agricultural input supply chain. So from five kilos up to thousand kilogram bulk bags. So the products range from granulated crop protection products, seed bags, animal feed bags, and fertilizers 
entering the, the agricultural supply chain. How about grain bags or silo bags? At this stage, we're not looking at um, those specifically. There are some pilots that are running with Dairy Australia running uh, a silage wrap program. Um, and also the Department of Ag uh, is working on a non-packaging plastics recycling research project at the moment. So we are very aware that there is some other um, other um, alternative product stewardship initiatives that are actually in the pipeline in development as well. Uh, so as you said, Drummaster runs mostly through the, the local Tearport waste transfer station, yeah. but Bagmuster, it's going to involve farmers returning those bags to, to where they bought them from? Yeah, well, we'd like to be able to do a collect and drop-off um, service um, and that would be ideally work where we'd have hoppers set up in retail sites for them to drop in the bags there as well. Long-term, um, it may um, also include um, sites alongside Drummuster collection sites which are in waste transfer stations. Who's going to pay for it? So um, AgSafe is self-funding the pilot and we are working with um, CropLife and Australian Seeds Federation member companies to actually fund the program in the long term. Okay, so it won't be a farmer levy to cover it? No, this will be a um, fee that will be um, charged at the, uh, at the point at the point that the uh, products are entering the supply chain um, and it's part of the product price of the, um, of the bagged product, unlike Drummaster, which is currently under an ACCC authorised levy. It will not be a levy per se. Would you envisage, though, that the, the product manufacturers would just pass on that cost to, to the farmers? Uh, it will be included in the pricing of the product. So the, the cost to go up, do you know, for example, a 1,000 kilogram bulker bag, how much the cost of, of it would go up? I, I can't make a comment on the actual cost of the program at this point in time. Are the bags going to be recycled? Yes. Um, we do know that there has been some challenges in the recycling market in Australia. However, the Recycling Modernisation Fund, which has been set up by the Department of Climate Change, Energy and Environment of Water, means that there's a massive pipeline of infrastructure development that is happening across Australia at the moment and coming online in the next 12 to 24 months. We are very confident that the increased recycling capacity means that these products can be sustainably recycled in Australia. So starting off with a pilot program, when's that going to start and where will it operate? So we're looking at um, sites across Australia, including Victoria, but, um, but also into South Australia and, and New South Wales uh, to do some pilots mid-year this year. Uh, we'll be looking at the retailers for them to host these sites in the first stages and then we'll be rolling out during 2024 more nationally. How many sites would you like to have ultimately? Well, Drummaster has about over 800 collection sites around Australia. We would uh, envisage in the long term it would be similar to that. Uh, Drummaster has 80% of farmers can um, are located within 40 kilometres of a Drummaster site, and we'd be looking at that as one of our um, one of our key measurements of um, how we can operate that. How about those? IBCs or those 1,000-litre shuttles that Chemical comes in, 
Uh, I think some of those are returned to the yeah. manufacturer, but I know a lot of them aren't. Are you looking at those as well? Uh, there are returnable programs in place for those IBCs, um, Schutz and um, um, a couple of other programs will return those. Uh, you can return them to the, those manufacturers directly and they do get recycled through. I do know that there's a lot of farmers that see value in retaining those IBCs and repurposing them. We don't encourage them to do that. We encourage them to contact those returnable programs directly and have them safely um, recycled. AgSafe General Manager Dominic Doyle speaking with Angus Verley. We'll head to the Weather Bureau now to find out just when this cool change is going to arrive at your place. I'm joined by Senior Forecaster Vince Rollins. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. So a reprieve at last. What's happening? Yeah, there is. So we've seen that change move across uh, parts of the west, the west coast areas, sort of hovering around Cleve uh, to Stenhouse Bay at the moment. So yeah, conditions are so a bit cooler behind that change. So along the coast, certainly much cooler. Sedona's currently sitting at 24 uh, down around uh, the west parts of Air Peninsula, temperatures in the low 20s as well. So, yeah, certainly much relief behind that change, but still pretty hot and pretty windy, those northerlies uh, ahead of it. And, uh, yeah, we are still expecting uh, some showers and possible thunderstorms to sort of extend uh, across parts behind this, well, mainly behind the change. We did see a little bit of lightning about western parts of Air Peninsula uh, earlier this morning, but that seems to have eased off. But uh, that band that's currently sitting uh, just west of the the west coast of Air Peninsula, there's a little bit of lightning in that. So still a little bit of concern around for, for lightning as uh, that system moves across the state. And we're initially not going to see too much rainfall with it. So yeah, a bit of concern around the dry lightning. But as we get into the latter part of this evening and into tomorrow, we are expecting a little bit more rainfall with those thunderstorms. So hopefully not posing as much of an issue um, Yeah, once we see this main change come through and, and much cooler conditions but yeah it's, uh, it was pretty warm overnight we did see some some pretty high minimum temperatures and a few records broken uh, around so we did see record February minimums for um, Wood and Awala, uh, Cummins, um, Minlerton and Pandana and Robe so yeah some interesting uh, temperatures overnight and I'm sure people in those areas would have certainly felt those warm temperatures but yeah certainly cooling down behind this system so we are expecting it to continue obviously moving eastwards probably see it come through Adelaide I was thinking around the sort of four four o'clock-ish maybe four to five o'clock depending on whether it just slows down a bit as it moves across but yes yeah, certainly I think people will be waiting for um, that relief to come through and as we head into uh, the the weekend and, and next week we will see those milder conditions continuing right across the state right through until uh, probably next Friday. Probably still very hot in the far northeast for over the weekend and early next week but they will see some relief coming through uh, probably Wednesday with temperatures dropping back to the mid-30s from, from the low 40s. So yeah, eventually we will see that relief right across the state. But yeah, today still expecting, as I mentioned, some shower and possible thunderstorm activity just to move across the south and west associated with this system. That will uh, we'll see some thunderstorms
thunderstorm and showers continuing in the southeast tomorrow. Maybe some uh, dry thunderstorms up in the, the pastoral districts tomorrow. But other than that, we are looking at a, a relatively dry period uh, starting from Sunday. Maybe a little bit of shower activity around the southern agricultural area on Wednesday, but yeah, certainly not expecting too much out of that. So yeah, looking like uh, that change is moving through and just hopefully we don't see too much activity as far as fires go today, Cassie. Yes, there have been a couple downgraded, yes. but uh, it's we're not out of the woods yet. Thanks for that. Vince Rollins from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the Upper Western will be mostly sunny tomorrow morning, but there could be a thunderstorm around, but with little to no rainfall in the southwest in the afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures will fall to 20 to 27 degrees, but the day still getting up to the mid to high 30s. The Lower Western will be partly cloudy again. Thunderstorm with not much rain around. Overnight temperatures down to 21 to 26 degrees, but during the day reach. 31 to 36. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me. I'm Cassie Half. Now, this afternoon, I'll be focusing on water. The state water ministers are meeting today in Canberra following the announcement of the federal, following the announcement from the federal government that it would move to voluntary water buybacks, and uh, that is designed to reach the required water for the Murray Darling Basin Plan. But it's a move that has not been welcomed by irrigators. Oh, look, it's probably the worst kept secret. There was money appropriated in the last budget, but, you know, they wouldn't say how much or what it was actually for. I'll have more on that soon. I also hope to catch up with the Minister in the next 15 minutes. Uh, Minister Susan Close has been at that MINCO meeting today. They've just stepped out, so we're hoping to catch up with her to see how that has gone. We won't have news headlines for you today, but uh, listen in at 1 o'clock for Matt Common with the latest in what's happening in news across South Australia and the nation. But we will focus on the river for the next couple of minutes because flows from the Riverland into the Coorong have provided scientists with the first real opportunity to monitor the impacts of a flood in the region. The Department of Environment and Water has funded a research study in the Coorong, Lower Lakes and Murray Mouth undertaken by the CSIRO and the University of Adelaide. Program leader Adrian Rumbelow says the flow event has more than halved the salinity of the Coorong's Lake Albert. Well, as you can imagine, because of all the water that's been coming down the River Murray um, through the barrages and into the Coorong, um, the levels have been really, really high for the last couple of months. So usually over summer, water levels are down around kind of close to um, sea level, so around zero metres AHD. So yeah, they've been up around a metre AHD for most of summer. It's just been probably the last week or two weeks that we've started the sea levels reducing. So they've probably dropped off by about 30 centimetres in the last few weeks. So we're starting to get some reductions in the, the edges of the Coorong, which is where you get those really productive mudflats. So, yeah, we're just starting to see it recede at the moment. But, yeah, I've spoken to a lot of people and they've all said, oh, we've never seen the Coorong looking like this at this time of year. It's quite phenomenal, actually. Yeah, I mean, to picture a metre of water in the middle of summer, um, I was just going to ask you if, if there's any summers on record that you can kind of look to that have had similar, but it sounds like locals are saying that, um, yeah, it's it's definitely unique. Yeah, well, I presume the last time it's it's looked 
like this or higher would have been the 1956 flood. We didn't have all the monitoring infrastructure around the place that we do now, so we're lucky we've got a whole heap of surface water monitoring stations throughout the lower lakes and the Coorongs. And what are you observing? I mean, this water at this time of year, what effect is it having on local fauna, flora? What's it looking like? So I'll start with some conditions in Lake Albert. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the bottom of the River Murray system, when water travels from the end of the channel near Wellington, it goes into two freshwater lakes. So Lake Alexandrina is the biggest and that connects through to the Coorong. And then there's also a smaller um, terminal lake called Lake Albert, which is connected to Lake Alexandrina. Since the millennium drought, um, Lake Albert's been really salty. So Lake Alex salinity has reduced and has been around kind of three to 400 EC for the last couple of years. But Lake Albert remained really salty. And it's just been the last kind of 12, 18 months that we've really seen to see, we've seen some significant reduction in salinity in Lake Albert. So at the moment, it's around 800 EC. ECs, which is electrical conductivity units, before that. So 12, 18 months ago, it was up around 1,800. So that's, you know, a 1,000 EC drop, which is really significant for the ecology, but also significant for people who use the lake to irrigate or to provide water to stock. So, yeah, that, that's been one of the big stories, I think, from the floods. And it mentions here that you're looking to secure some potential funding to do more research on the impacts of the flooding. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, I work for the Department for Environment and Water and we've been working with a lot of the researchers that collect data for us. Obviously, a, a slow event like this doesn't happen very often. So we really want to make the most of the information um, and really learning from how how the system's um, responding to those flows. So. Yeah, we've been working with the Goiter Institute for Water Research and we've just had a few projects funded, one of which is being led by CSIRO and the University of Adelaide to capture some of the benefits to the marine environment from all this fresh water. So there'll actually be some people going out this week to collect data on, I guess we're calling it the plume, <laughs> so that plume of kind of brown muddy water that's flowing out the Murray Mouth into the ocean. According to satellite images, it looked like it was kind of heading around through Backstairs Passage and around past Kangaroo Island. So the extent's been pretty amazing. So we're keen to get some information on how all the little critters from the freshwater providing food to those species uh, in the marine environment and how that trophic process is benefiting the, the small marine creatures up to some of the, the bigger creatures. And I know there's been observations of local seeing tuna around the place. So, yeah, some of those bigger water predators are obviously moving in and taking advantage of, of the food in the area. And it must be hard to put parameters on that research. I mean, it sounds like there's so many different areas that you can look at and I imagine it will be going on for some time. Are you looking for kind of a long-term research project to really track changes? Yeah, yeah. So at the moment, we've just got funding for the next month or two, which is when, so the flows are currently receding out the Murray Mouth. So we're just capturing the tail end of, of the high flow event. But yeah, they'll continue to do some modelling and updating the information they've got and yeah, doing some further research. So yeah, it's going to be really exciting to see the results of that project. 
Adrian Rumbelow from the Department of Environment and Water speaking with reporter Beck Wetham. We will just pick up with Matt Coleman and get the news headlines. He is with me now. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Country Fire Service has advised that the threat of a fire burning freely towards Gawler and Ward Belt has reduced. Firefighters, along with water bombers, have managed to halt the front of the stubble and hay bale fire near Red Banks Road at Kangaroo Flat. The CFS is anticipating it will be under control within hours. Residents and motorists in the area are being urged to be careful in the meantime, with smoke affecting townships and the Northern Expressway. Meanwhile, CFS and MFS crews are still dealing with a fire in two unused concrete tanks at the intersection of the Air and Lincoln Highways at Lincoln Gap. Traffic restrictions remain in place, with thick black smoke being caused by burning discarded tyres within the 15-metre tanks. The CFS says there's no danger to the nearby town from the fire which began yesterday. And a serial South Australian stalker has been jailed for more than six years for his harassment of 25 women that he met on the street on dating apps and through social media. 36-year-old Sean Ian Bruce Flintoff pleaded guilty to 25 stalking charges and was today sentenced in the Elizabeth Magistrates Court. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Better late than never. We're going to stay with the river, though. We've just heard uh, the environmental effects that are being seen at the bottom end of the Murray-Darling Basin. But with the federal government confirming that it's going to buy water from irrigators to help meet the targets of the Murray-Darling Basin plan, the chairman of the National Irrigators Council, Jeremy Morton, says he's extremely disappointed by the announcement. Irrigation communities have been, ever since the Minister found herself in that role, been pleading with her to to find ways of achieving the outcomes of the Basin Plan without resorting to going back into the water market. There are other ways. She's taken no interest in what's been suggested by irrigation communities to to achieve outcomes for the Basin Plan. And that's what it's 100% about. It's about risk restoring the system to health and protecting it for when you've got dry times. And they're just completely wedded to this this view that more water equals more outcomes and that is not not actually the way it is. You know, there's lots of ways of achieving outcomes that doesn't require more water recovery that just means that, you know, the the people of, of the basin, their incomes, their livelihood, their industries, their communities are at massive risk. And it also, it's every person in every city around the, around the country, you know, this means higher food prices, more scarcity of food. You know, in a time when we're hearing consistently out of this government about cost of living pressures and everything else, this is making it worse. So basically, the Water Minister has, despite all the representations from irrigation communities, not to restart the water wars, is absolutely restarting the water wars. Does the National Irrigators Council feel like it was consulted about this? There were definitely some rumblings that buybacks might have been back on the agenda later last year. Oh, look, it's probably the worst-kept secret. There was money appropriated in the last budget, but, you know, they wouldn't say how much or what it was actually for because, you know, I mean, they said it was commercial incompetence, but it could have been commercial incompetence because they were looking at um, other ways, you know, that, would need, you know, contractors to, to do works to, to improve environmental outcomes. But no, it's clear that it's 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 outbacks and, and her commentary just basically says, you know, these are commit, commitments that were made and we're not walking away from it. So there's still time for her to change her mind and take, you know, the better, smarter, 
um, approach to still get the outcomes, but not, you know, basically restart the water wars. I'm, I'm, I'm bloody furious about this. The catchments that are being targeted by this buyback at the moment are in New South Wales and Queensland. There is talk that there will need to be um, some water savings in the ACT as well. Why were those places chosen? The, the way the basin plan worked was each individual valley across the basin had a recovery target against it. So there's water still to be recovered in the New South Wales Murray and, and up in Queensland and some in the ACT. So there's still um, individual valleys that have water recovery targets that haven't been met. It's actually quite important to remember that, you know, this is 40, 46, I think 46 or 49 gigalitres that they're looking to start buying back straight away. Yeah, well, 49.2 uh, is what's aiming to be recovered across those seven catchments. Yeah. Yep. So, so there's actually also 78 gigalitres of water that they, you know, like I said, each valley had a target. They've recovered more water in some valleys and that totals up to about 78 gigalitres. And, and most of that's actually in New South Wales as well. Not that this is just about New South Wales, it's about the whole, the whole Murray-Darling Basin. What's the likelihood that other basin states might be targeted by buybacks further down the track? Well, the, one, of the, one of the biggest risks we still have is the supply measure part, component of the basin plan, which is basically 600 and it was well, set at 605, it could have been up to 650, but it's at 605 and there's... And they'll talk about that on, on Friday at Ministerial Council meeting and I think there'll be acknowledgement that there looks like there's going to be around a 300 gigalitre shortfall. Now, that water can come from anywhere across the basin. And one thing I heard the Minister say as well is, you know, we've had irrigators coming to us saying they want to sell us water. Well, I, I can guarantee you, and we heard also the South Australian Water Minister saying that, you know, the plan needs to be done. I can guarantee you a lot of those... Um, irrigators that are under enormous pressure at the moment are grape growers in South Australia who have had a terrible season with disease and everything else on top of the fact that you know the Chinese market closed to them so a lot of this water is potentially going to come out of South Australia I don't know I don't know if the South Australian water ministers thought too long and hard about that there are better ways, that's the thing, there are better ways of achieving the environmental outcomes without having these massive impacts and restarting the water wars. You've mentioned that there are better options. What specifically do you think they are? Well, it's about delivering environmental water to get the outcomes and but using less water. Now, there's, there's actually a project that one of the big irrigation delivery companies has put up and this and this could be replicated across the basin where they use their system to deliver water into to wetlands and creeks to get environmental outcomes now now these these creeks and wetlands were never ever even under a fully implemented basin plan ever going to get any water except in a flood like we've just seen so you this is on top of this is extra outcomes on top of the basin plan but the, the thing of the beauty of it is you do it with very, very, very small volumes of water. So massive, massive environmental gains that weren't even thought of or thought possible with very small volumes of water. You basically use the irrigation network to deliver water to sites high in the landscape.
the chairman of the National Irrigators Council, Jeremy Morton, speaking with Kelly Hollingworth there. So uh, clearly irrigators are not terribly pleased with this move by the federal government to uh, go to water buybacks. But uh, we do have the Minister for Water, the South Australian Minister for Water and Environment, Dr Susan Close, who has just stepped out of the Minco meeting with other um, water ministers uh, today. Uh, They were discussing how to implement the final stages of the Basin Plan. Good afternoon, Minister. Good afternoon. Good to talk to you. So this was decided, the the move to voluntary buybacks was decided before this meeting. The open tender is going to start on March 25th. How was this dealt with at the meeting? Uh, We noted that the Commonwealth had decided to undertake strategic uh, and voluntary buybacks of water to bridge the gap, which is the gap in the uh, initial level of the plan that hasn't been achieved yet. Um, what we're dealing with, of course, is that uh, while there was a lot of water that was recovered under the previous Labor federal government during the nine years of the Morrison-Barnaby-Joyce show, we had very, very little water being delivered. And so uh, poor Tanya Plibersek has come in and is having to try to catch up on a plan that is massively uh, delayed through complete inaction at the Commonwealth level. So this is step one. She's implemented uh, this strategic approach to having voluntary buybacks for the 49 gigalitres that's required uh, for that uh, bridging the gap, as it's called, but and and we noted that also noting that a couple of the states are ideologically opposed to allowing people to sell their water for environmental purposes. Did that mean there was a bit of a standoff in the meeting between, say, New South Wales, which we have covered their perhaps lack of uh, movement in this area, where other states have made steps towards, particularly with the the water plans, to uh, to return some water to the environment. Uh, Look, I don't think there's any surprise that New South Wales and Victoria don't like the idea of voluntary buybacks. They've um, been on the public record, so uh, that was something stated in the meeting but didn't come as a surprise to anyone around the table. Uh, It's known and understood, but it's also the case that uh, it has been the mechanism used for the overwhelming majority of the water thus far that's been delivered to the Commonwealth. And I do find it... um, passing strange, you know, that people are allowed to sell their water for uh, to, to foreign entities, for example, uh, but they're not allowed to sell it uh, under that, that ideological view to enable the environment to be sustainable long into the future. And I think what we should really remember is that this plan is all about having a healthy working river and a healthy working basin. This isn't about some sort of um, a positioning, political positioning to say, wouldn't it be nice to have a plan and let's make it this many gigalitres? It's actually a scientifically based plan, although science, um, if it were even more robust, would probably say even more water is required in a drying climate. But it's a plan that says that to have a reasonable chance of a sustainable basin long into the future that we'll be able to continue to use as a basis for primary production, we need to have enough water to keep the environment going. And, uh, and Tanya Plibersek's come in and said, right, well, we're going to get this plan delivered and this is step one. The Irrigators Council, though, is concerned that this could lead to a return to water wars and specifically mentioned that South Australia could bear the brunt of some of that. Do you have concerns? Uh, well, uh, it worries me that uh, any any organisation talks about going to water wars when all we're talking about is delivering a plan that is pretty long in the tooth now. This plan has been around for more than 10 years. This is a plan that was signed up to by all of the basin states. The amount of water was identified and uh, there, there was progress initially and then that progress came to a halt. 
came to a halt. So I'm not sure what people think might happen, given that we know that the climate's drying, we know that there is just to have half a chance of having a sustainable Murray-Darling Basin, we need to have enough water held by the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder to keep the environment healthy enough to sustain production in the future. And that plan has been in place for a long time. So to suddenly uh, be surprised to start talking about water wars uh, is really disappointing, frankly. What we need is for every organisation that's dependent on a healthy, productive basin to uh, get around and talk about how they want to deliver it. Uh, I did hear the irrigator talking about being able to deliver environmental outcomes with uh, more efficient water. Um, that's exactly the way that South Australia has approached its management of primary production. We are extraordinarily efficient uh, in using as little water as possible for the maximum production possible. Efficiency is, is something that works for primary production and irrigators um, in South Australia know that very well and have an excellent record. In the last 12 months though, not a single gigalitre has been secured by the Labor government, the state Labor government though. So is this largely work that the, has been achieved by the former Liberal government? Well, there's about uh, 26 gigalitres that's either delivered or contracted out of the 450 gigalitres. So there has been some progress. But the real challenge is that we've had until Tanya Plibersek was, uh, and the Anthony Albanese government was elected, we've had a federal government that's been absolutely opposed to opening up any new schemes. And in fact, you may recall that Keith Pitt decided that there wouldn't be any on-farm efficiency schemes allowed, for example. Uh, so cut off all avenues for, for uh, having some progress. So what we finally have now is a Commonwealth government that's prepared to say, well, we will use, and this was explicitly discussed at, at the meeting today, we, we recognise that there will be a number of strategies required, one of which is voluntary buyback, but it's not the only strategy, and that we're prepared to consider and uh, use, if necessary, all of the approaches. So finally, we now have a government that's prepared to partner with, with Basin States to start delivering the projects that are required. Um, and, and, and I am, as a result, more hopeful, despite the fact that it is extraordinarily frustrating that here we are, a bit over a year away from when we're supposed to have 450 gigalitres, and all we've got are either contracted or, or delivered is 26. One of the major ways that the uh, water will be returned to the environment by 2024 was a range of projects. I think they accounted for 605 gigalitres, They're the Sustainable Diversion Limit Adjustment Mechanism projects, but one, massive ones like the Menindee Lakes have largely been abandoned uh, beyond just what farmers have to return to the environment. The, these projects don't seem like they are on track. Were they addressed? And, and is there any way that those huge amounts, 605 gigalitres, will be recovered in time? Uh, they, they were addressed. So uh, people may remember that the the whole plan is 3,200 gigalitres that needs to be taken into the uh, management by the environment uh, each year. And uh, after that was agreed, 70 was taken off for the northern basin, and then uh, 450 is the is the one is the amount that was to be set aside. That uh, is the reason South Australia signed up, and we've only got uh, 26 gigalitres of that 450. And then there was 605, which said you can keep that 605 in primary production, and we will deem that the equivalent has been delivered through various infrastructure projects, most of which have yet to be delivered. So we think at the moment that we're about 300 gigalitres short on the delivery of the, the alleged 605. That's so are farmers very, going to have to make that gap. up? 
Well, the, what the basin plan requires is that if they are not delivered on time, then they, that will come out of the consumptive pool. And that, that's, on, that's on the states not moving fast. So both Victoria and New South Wales have now said, oh, well, we, we have projects that we'd still like to do and we'd like more time. And the, the, that's not legislatively uh, possible at the moment. The legislation requires that to be done by a certain period. And that's been known for more than 10 years. So there's a degree of frustration that I feel in South Australia. We've delivered some of those projects. And uh, the Pike floodplain, for example, is an excellent project and it has environmental benefits and I, and I support it. Uh, but the idea that suddenly a deadline is, uh, uh, that was 10 years out has come as a surprise uh, is not good enough. And that's what uh, South Australia is confronting, that's what the Basin States collectively are confronting, that's what the Commonwealth is, is confronting, that there's been this pass given for 605 gigalitres, but the projects haven't been delivered. Uh, and so we are going to have to wrestle with that. And the, at the end of the meeting, what we determined was, given that all states remain committed to delivering the full plan and that there was not one state that hesitated to say that, uh, that we have the Basin State officials at the Commonwealth and the state levels working together to develop the program to deliver that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you stepping out of the meeting for me. Oh, thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Dr Susan Close, Water Minister for South Australia. It's seven minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Finally today, we normally talk about this in December, but it seems the last independent turkey farm in South Australia has been put on the market. Pujanagoric Free Range Turkeys is owned and operated by John and Robin Watson. After more than 30 years, the couple have decided it's time to retire. But as the last designated independent turkey farm in the state, their customers are going to be forced to look interstate for alternatives. Mr Watson told Elsie Adamo it will be hard to leave the business behind. Well, Elsie, after 32 years, we've decided that, that we've got to take a break. We've got a house at Kingston we've had for several years we hardly ever use, and uh, the old catchy thing these days, sea change. So I suppose we have a genuine sea change and go to Kingston and try and relax for a few years. But it has been a long haul, 32 years, starting with just 40-day-old turkeys and building it up to the point where a few years ago we are doing 30,000 a year. And, and it's just the nature of the beast that they're very demanding creatures to keep alive and yeah seven days a week on weekends we're not like dairy farmers we are working extremely hard on weekends but we're still somebody's got to be here and turkeys thrive on times when there's nobody around there's just amazing the things they can do to to yeah spurts yourself destruct when you're not checking on them everybody that's had turkeys and anybody that's listening to this will know that there's always horror stories about turkey fatalities and that's why there's only we're the, we're the only turkey farm in south australia now and there's only uh, three other independent turkey farms in Australia, and then there's Inghams and Steggles doing large numbers. But it tells you a story. If it was easy, there'd be a turkey farm down the end of every road, and they're not there. So that's uh, it's just not easy. Are you selling everything? Is it the business? Is it the land? Is it the house? What's part of the sale? Yeah, we've been fortunate that our, our turkey farm and our house, our farmhouse, is right on the edge of our property. So we had that subdivided a couple of years ago. So there's uh, about 20-odd acres where all the free-range yards are, the house and the factory. Sort of, it's sad for us because we're leaving our business in its absolute prime. In fact, there's no other turkey farms in South Australia, no opposition. We've got most probably over 150 South Australian customers that stand the possibility of not having any any turkey product for Christmas. We're still supplying uh, regulars at the moment, but in about another month, we'll, we'll be back to zero stock. So the words around the southeast that we are closing down or retiring, I think I'd rather say retiring than closing down. Closing down seems like you're selling a business that's failed, and it's not. It's, we're, we're just... 
closing down because I tell everybody, I'm sorry I got old, but <laughs> can't help that. So that's the way it is. So, uh, But yeah, we've created panic buying like you wouldn't believe. Right, so there's people trying to buy up all your stock before before the sale. Yeah, particularly our schnitzels and our burgers that are well known right through uh, the southeast and South Australia and people just ordering huge amounts to put in their freezers and you know we've even had people said oh they're buying a tucker box freezer to fill it up with turkey well we're doing our best to supply as many as we can as um, keeping up the normal supply to uh, our local food land and uh, independent butcher richards they've been extremely good the way of support us over the years but and after 30 years would it be sad if there's no independent turkeys left in south australia how would you feel about the potential of there being no options left in the state I'm not enjoying it one little bit. And I'm telling everybody it would be much easier to grow our business by 50% than what it is to, to wind it back to zero. It's it's not easy. We did a sponsorship deal at the Bordertown Golf Club last Friday for the Farmers Golf Day. And they gave my wife and I a lovely presentation. And in fact, I got a little bit emotional, which is, uh, I felt a bit silly about it afterwards, but I you was know, a bit stuck for words and really almost teary because it's the last time we're doing it. And we have not got one customer we don't like. We, we are a small enough business to know them all by, on the phone, ring them with orders and things, and, and to think they're not going to get anything. It's, it is sad. It really is. It's, a, it's not a good feeling, no. I miss Monday mornings because that's when I ring around, talk to all the customers, see what they want. And uh, it's a guy, Tony O'Connell at the Central Market. I've read him, rang him every Monday morning for 30 years. <laughs> so I'm not really sure how he's going to go either. So uh, You might uh, still be calling him on Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> I might give him a call for Kingston, just see what he's up to. <laughs> Make sure he's out of bed. <laughs> and do you think it is getting harder for turkey farmers but also other livestock producers to compete with those bigger companies oh it certainly is i just it baffles me how they can do things so cheap but yeah it's 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 not easy for small business anymore it's been fantastic the way people have supported us and and most probably have had cheaper options that's the thing that amazes me a little bit because even last year there was cheaper turkeys in the supermarkets but the independent butchers still bought thousands of turkeys off us and you'd think well why don't those people their customers just go to the supermarket they they obviously like our product support south australian and independent south australians and australians in general are very patriotic towards smaller businesses and i know a lot of people are on a limited budget and they can't afford to buy the more uh the more expensive product like ours is to a certain extent they have to go and get the cheaper product but it's it's been incredible the way the support we've had and you'll still be eating turkey well i'm gonna have some terrible withdrawal symptoms on tuesdays because Tuesday night's always schnitzel night for us because that's the big day for schnitzel making in the factory where we do quite a few supermarket orders and uh, butcher shop orders and there's always a f- two or three tatty ones or I'll, I'll, I'll find something that uh, I can always bring back to the house and yeah, Tuesday night's schnitzel night. I can't bear the thought of not having a turkey schnitzel or a turkey burger in the fridge. Yeah. What a luxury. Pujanagoric free-range turkeys owner John Watson speaking to Elsie Dharma. I can imagine you would miss that. And I'm sure he will be missed. Maybe not right now, but come December when people want their South Australian turkeys, free-range turkeys, they might be quite missed as well. So all the best for the future to John and Robin Watson. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.